please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. James chapter 4, and I'll read verses 5 through 10. And James says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? The Spirit which he has made to dwell in us yearns jealously over us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. We've been looking at this passage in our recent sermons, and we've seen in beginning in verse 5 and following that James is giving his readers the cure for their selfish and worldly lusts and ambitions which had caused so much quarrel and conflict among them. They thought their quarrels and their conflicts were caused by something outside of themselves what others had done to them, how others had treated them, but James points out in this passage that the source and the origin of all of their sins is from the selfish ambitions of their own hearts and from the pleasures that wage war from their own members. The source of their problems comes from within themselves, he is saying to them. And that's the way it is so often when sin gets an upper hand upon us. We often think the cause of our problems are something from outside of ourselves, the circumstances of life, the trials that we are going through, the way that other people treat us. But James would have us to know that it really comes from within ourselves. To blame other things has always been the way of man. It was Adam's way in the garden. With the very first sin in this world, he said, It is the woman whom you have given to me. That's the way it's always been. But James would have us to know that our problem with sin is from what arises from our own hearts and our inward lusts. But now in verses 5 and following, he brings us to the only cure which is found in the grace of God, which comes to us by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, at the end of the verse, he tells us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God has made him to dwell in us in a permanent indwelling in every believer from conversion, and the Holy Spirit yearns jealously over us for our sanctification. And by his indwelling in us in the beginning of verse 6, he tells us that God now gives to us a greater grace than all the trials of this life, than all the temptations of the world and the power of sin in us, however great those things may be, by the Holy Spirit, God now gives to us a greater grace that we might live and conquer as we should. 
In the second half of verse 6, he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, a general principle of the scripture. He says, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud are those who are self-sufficient. They have no need of God. They do not believe in his beloved son because they have no need of the forgiveness of their sins. And so they stand at a distance from the son of God and all that he has done for sinners. And because of that, God, he says, is opposed to them, which means that God takes up a battle array and he resists the proud and he frustrates all of their plans ultimately. But the humble are those who have seen themselves as sinners. And the humble are those who have come to his beloved son and submitted themselves to him. And they love him and delight in him and they continually see their need of him. And God, in his response to them, to the humble of heart, he looks upon them with favor. He continually sends them increasing measures of his grace He gives grace to the humble. And now in verses 7 through 10, James begins now to tell us, to describe to us the spirit and grace-filled life of a believer. In verses 5 and 6, he has said that we are filled with the Holy Spirit And the grace of God is upon us now in verses 7 down through verse 10. James now begins to tell us what the spirit-filled and the grace-filled life of a Christian really looks like. The beginning of the paragraph, we may take it at the end of verse 6. God gives grace to the humble. It goes down to verse 10 where he says, humble yourselves. He closes with a similar exhortation, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And then he closes with a promise, and he will exalt you. That phrase in the beginning of verse 7 is what we look at this morning. Submit, therefore, to God. Every word in that phrase points us back to The great truth found at the end of verse 6, that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is God who is opposed and it is God who gives grace and so it is God to whom we must submit. The word therefore always points us backward to the previous context, here to the previous verse, and what he is saying is that this is the only right and reasonable conclusion Therefore, he says, based upon what I have just said in verse 6, that God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, the only right conclusion for us to take is to submit ourselves to God. The word submit is a military term which speaks of one being under the authority of of a superior officer. Soldiers of lower rank must always submit themselves to those of higher rank. But here we submit ourselves not to another man who is like ourselves with a higher rank upon his shoulder, but here we must submit ourselves to the highest authority in all of the universe, to the great and mighty 
God. The word submit in verse 7 comes from the same root word as the word opposed or resist. In verse 6, God is opposed, God is resisted. And the word submit comes from the same root word. If we were to read this in the original, original language, we would see that what James is doing here is he's placing these two things side by side, a play on words. And what he is saying is that if God is so opposed to the proud, if he so resists the proud and arrays himself in a battle array against them, then the only right thing, the only reasonable the only reasonable position for us to take is to submit ourselves unto him entirely and completely and in every way bring ourselves into submission to the great God. Because all opposition to God is doomed to destruction in the end. Whatever stands against him will come to ruin and defeat. All opposition is doomed. He may allow rebellion to continue for a time because he is patient and he is looking for repentance, but in the end, he will bring all of his enemies to a destruction. Who can ever stand against him? Nothing in all the world could be more foolish than to stand and oppose the mighty God. The proud of this earth, they may attempt to do it. It will last for only a little while and they will all be brought down to their destruction. But the humble, they bow themselves, they desire his rule to know his grace and help. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, let us submit ourselves to God. Back in verse 4, James has accused them of being spiritual adulteresses because of their remaining love of the world and their friendship with the world. And he told them there in verse 4 that they were making themselves the enemies of God those who resist him. So James now in verse 7, he is urgently warning them, those whom he spoke to in the earlier verses of this chapter, he is earnestly warning them that if they continue in their love of the world and their lust for earthly and worldly things and make themselves an enemy of God, It will not end well with them because no enemy of God will have success in the end. So James here is calling them to repentance, to take heed to their ways. If any of them have gone astray in their hearts, they should turn back from their sinful ways. They should return to God and submit themselves to him and plead for his grace to come in mercy and forgiveness and for him to give them the greater grace that he mentions, that they might live as they should. He stands in battle array against the proud. But he is always gracious and kind. 
And as soon as he sees anyone begin to humble themselves and submit to them, to him, he will lay down his weapons of war and he will come to them and forgive them and show them mercy and grace and receive the repenting sinner. So James is giving the only right advice to us here. In every situation, in every circumstance of life, this is the only reasonable and rational way is for us to submit, therefore, to God. But this submission that James speaks of here, to God, it is not only reasonable, it is also the most pleasant an enjoyable course of life for us as well. Submission to God may seem to be something difficult, something hard or restrictive, but that can only be true of those who are rebellious against him. To submit oneself to another being who is harsh, cruel, a tyrant, one who is oppressive and unforgiving, that is a hard submission. But the God of the Bible is always good, He is always gracious. He is a loving and generous God in all of his ways. And to submit to him in who he is must always be the way that is easy, most pleasant, and best for us in all of life. Anything otherwise Any thought otherwise must come from our pride, our sin, our rebellion against him. If we are in our right minds and we know who God truly is in all his goodness, his love, his kindness, his wisdom, then for us to submit to him is not only reasonable, It is easy, it is pleasant, it is good for us, and even most enjoyable. So this morning, we want to consider four ways in which submission to God is good, pleasant, enjoyable to us. First, submission to his gospel. Second, submission to his word. Third, submission to his promises. And last, submission to his providence. In the first place, submission to his gospel. When James says here, submit therefore to God, the very first way in which anyone submits to God is by submission to his gospel. 
Before we submit to the gospel of Christ, we are proud, we are rebellious sinners, but the very first act of any humility, any submission to him is always submission to the gospel. And submission to God's gospel means that we willingly accept God's terms for salvation. And there is nothing in all the world that could be more pleasant, more easy for a sinner, any man or woman in all the earth than to bring himself to submission to God's terms in the gospel. We are all sinners, every one of us. We have been born sinners. We are sinners by nature against God. We are sinners by practice in all of our lives. And our sin has brought us under condemnation, under guilt, under the terrible but righteous wrath of God for our sins. And our greatest need in life is to find a way of mercy, a way of forgiveness and salvation to escape from the wrath of God that is coming. Because unless we find a way of salvation, we will perish in our sins. We will enter into eternal destruction, into that terrible place called hell. And there will be no way of escape forever and ever for us. So our great need in the present life is to find a way of peace with God, a way of forgiveness a way of salvation, once a man begins to realize that he has this great need, what is the thing that he first usually begins to do? He begins to find a way. He begins to try to make a way by his own efforts. He says to himself, well, let me try to be good. Let me try to do enough good deeds so that I can please God in heaven and he will accept me in the end. But how wearisome is that? How many good deeds does a man need to do to make himself acceptable in the sight of God? He never knows. And the Bible gives the answer. It is impossible. It is impossible for any man to ever merit anything to bring him into heaven. The answer of the Bible is that God's standard of holiness and righteousness is so high and so infinitely perfect that no sinner on earth can ever achieve any merit for salvation. God's standard is perfect righteousness from the beginning to the end of life, and we are all sinners. And as Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh, no man or woman will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What Paul is saying is that a man may spend a thousand years and try and do the very best he can. And when he is done with the thousand years of all his supposed goodness, he will not have one iota of credit in the favor of God for his eternal salvation. 
It is not God's fault that it is so. Because he must maintain the standard of his own perfect righteousness and holiness. It is our fault because of our sin that it is so. So the question is, well, what hope could there ever be for us? And how can we ever find a way of salvation? The answer is found in what God has done in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Because what God did from eternity, he looked into this world and he saw helpless and guilty sinners. And God said to himself, I do not desire the death of the wicked. I will come and rescue them. I will send my beloved son into the world and my glorious son will accomplish everything needed for their salvation. They can do nothing for their salvation, but my son will do everything needed for their salvation. He will accomplish it. It will be finished. It will be done in Jesus. And that's what he did. The Son of God came down from heaven, the glorious, eternal Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, he became a man. And in his humanity, he lived a perfect life of righteousness, the only man who was ever holy in all the history of the world. And God could always say of him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And his beloved Son went to, at the end of his life, went to the horrible death of a cross. And he went to that cross because there he was taking the wrath of God upon himself. The punishment that was due to sinners fell upon Jesus. So that the wrath of God could be removed from us and we might be forgiven of all of our sins. And God was so well pleased with everything his son did that he did something most astonishing with him. He raised him from the dead. He exalted him back into heaven to sit down at his right hand where he is this morning. And there Jesus in heaven is still the savior of sinners. And everything that we need for our salvation can be found in him. Perfect righteousness to stand in the presence of the holy God is given to us in Jesus. All the mercy and forgiveness that we will ever need for all of our sins in this present life. A new relationship with God, fellowship and love with him, peace with God. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us. Eternal life is given to us forever and ever. An inheritance to come in the new heavens and the new earth. There are unsearchable gifts and treasures that are all given to us from our Lord Jesus Christ. What we are saying is that the the banquet of salvation has all been prepared for sinners on earth. The great feast has been made ready. Everything needed is prepared and laid out there for sinners in that great and glorious banquet of salvation. And the invitation is given for all to come and receive all the blessings 
of salvation. So let us say the door is open, the door is open to the great banquet. Let us say that we come to the door of the great banquet and inside that banquet hall we see all the glorious salvation of Christ laid before us and we must enter in through that open door. We ask the question, well, what do we need to do to enter into the great banquet feast? What are God's terms of entrance here? Is there some great work that we must perform, some overwhelming task? What must we do to enter the open door of this great banquet of salvation? The answer is given to us, believe on the Lord Jesus. Come to Jesus and rest yourself entirely upon him and look to him for salvation. And that is all that you must do to be saved. Repent of sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Jesus said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, take up my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my load is light. That's what sinners must do to enter in to that great banquet of salvation where everything is finished for us in Jesus Christ. Could there be easier terms? more pleasant terms for guilty sinners to come? What could be easier? What could be more pleasant for us as condemned and guilty sinners to simply come and rest ourselves entirely upon Jesus and everything that he has already finished for our salvation? Could there be better terms? that God could offer to us? No. That's what Paul announces in Romans chapter 3 after he condemns the whole world in sin. We are all under guilt and under the power of sin, but then he says, but now in Jesus Christ the righteousness of God has been revealed. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from any works of the law. So the great God of heaven and earth has made a way for sinners to submit to him, to find salvation. And there could not be easier terms and more pleasant way of submission for our salvation than to come and believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved. What could possibly hold us back? What could possibly hold a sinner back except his remaining love of sin? His remaining pride? His desire to hold on to his so-called self-righteousness? What could hold a sinner back from such easy and pleasant terms? So that is the first way that we must submit to him is to submit to his gospel. The second way in which we must submit to him is submission to his word. 
I mean we must submit to his laws, his commandments, all the requirements that he gives us in his word. Now, if once again, if we are in our right minds, we would see that his commandments are always easy, pleasant, and the most enjoyable way for us to live. The good and wise God, he would never give a commandment that would do any harm to any man. His laws are always for our good, for our best, for our enjoyment, for the blessings of God upon us in this life. They are always righteous and holy. They are meant to guide us in the ways of peace and joy and happiness. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He said, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Have you ever found a man who has been harmed by obeying God's commandments? No, you never will. You may find those who have been persecuted for doing God's commandments, but the harm is not from God's commandments. His commandments are always righteous and good and holy. David tells us of this in the very first Psalm, Psalm 1. He says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. How blessed is that man, how joyful and happy he is. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. There's the righteous man. But the way of the wicked is not so. And whenever men try and live contrary to God's laws and his ways, it eventually brings pain, ruin, tears, destruction, ultimately upon them. Look at the world in which we live today. Men always living contrary to God's ways. And what does it bring them? Into great harm pain, wounds, and sorrows. James speaks of this right here in this book. If we turn back to chapter 1 for a moment, he speaks of this back in chapter 1, and we'll read beginning at verse 21. He says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But the one, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So there in verse 21, he speaks of the word of God. He calls it the perfect law. It is a perfect law because it comes from the perfect God and everything from him must be perfect. He calls it the law of liberty. 
because it brings men into the pathway of blessing. Everything he does, he shall be blessed, he says at the end of verse 25. So the law, the perfect law of God, is the law of liberty that brings us into freedom and peace. Sin is bondage, but the law, by the grace of God, brings us into liberty. The perfect law includes the Ten Commandments. He says this down in chapter 2 in verse 8. He says there, he says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, the law that comes from the good and gracious king, according to the scripture, and he quotes the summary of the second table of the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. He mentions it again down in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So the law includes the Ten Commandments, the royal law, the perfect law, the law of liberty. If we look back to chapter 4 and verse 11 for a moment. Chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to destroy, to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? So when James says in verse 7, submit therefore to God, what he is saying is, Submit, therefore, to his law and to his perfect word, his law of liberty in all of life. It is the only way of peace and happiness. Our sinful nature is always opposed to the law of God by nature. But God gives that greater grace by the indwelling Holy Spirit, and he gives a new heart and new desires, and he is able to enable us to live and to walk in his laws. Read Psalm 19. The precepts of the Lord are righteous, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Read Psalm 119. And David sums up the entire psalm when he says in verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. So we submit to the gospel of Christ. And then after we have submitted to the gospel of Christ, then we submit to his good and righteous laws. And when we do so, we live in this world with a good conscience, with peace inwardly. And we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And there is joy and happiness. And we have fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so the only way that is pleasant and good for us is to submit ourselves to his word and to his law. The third way of submission is submission to his promises. And when I say submission to his promises, what I mean is that we believe them, we rest upon his promises in such a way that they bring joy and peace and comfort to our souls and hope. 
but they also transform our lives and the way in which we live. The promises, submission to his promises is the only way that is pleasant, easy, and good for us. And this is really what Peter deals with in that passage we read earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'll read verses 2 through 4. Peter says, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. There we see in verse 4 that Peter mentions his precious and magnificent promises. And God has given to us many precious and magnificent promises in his word. Promises of Forgiveness, promises of salvation, promises of his presence, promises of his grace and the Holy Spirit, as James says. Promises of guidance in this life, promises of wisdom, promises of comfort in time of distress, promises of protection in times of danger, promises of provision for all of our needs. Promises of eternal life after death and an entrance into the eternal kingdom. All of these precious and magnificent promises. And what do they do to us if we submit ourselves and truly believe them? J uh, Peter tells us here in the second half of verse 4. He says, in order that you may, might become partakers of the divine nature. He means in order that you might be sanctified and be made more holy and not be conformed to the corruption that is in the world by lust. In other words, God has given us these precious and magnificent promises, and we submit ourselves to them. And in our belief of them, it changes our lives so that we live as we should. And we are more sanctified and less influenced by the world around us. He goes on to speak of this in verses 5 and following. He says, now for this very reason also, this is what the promises do. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, Love and in your and in your brotherly kindness, love. He says, for if these qualities are yours and, un, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what Peter is saying here. Submission to the promises, belief in the promises of God are the only pleasant and good way for us to live in this life that we might 
be more holy and walk in this way that is so pleasant for ourselves and for all others around us. We remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said that our Heavenly Father knows all of our needs before we even ask. And if we believe that promise, what will it do to us? We will not be like the Gentiles who are always wondering what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall wear anxiously, thinking about those things. No, we will live in trust of our Heavenly Father and we will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all these things will be added to us. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us the great promise. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's the promise. Our life is hidden with him. And when he is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. What should the promise do to us? It should make us those who are always seeking the things above and setting our minds upon the things above and not upon the things that are on earth. That's what the promise, if we submit to the promise and believe truly the promise, then we will live in a way that is good, pleasant, and easy for us. So surely submission to God's promises, all of his promises are good and pleasant for us. Not one of them will ever fail. And if we rest upon them and submit to them, we will be able to live with comfort and hope and joy in this present life. The last course of submission is submission to the providences of God. And this also is good, pleasant for us. Because when we submit to the providences of God, we are submitting to our loving Heavenly Father, who is all-powerful and all-wise. He sends many blessings upon us. James tells us back in chapter 1 that every good thing and every perfect gift bestowed is from above, coming down from the Father of light. So every good thing that we enjoy in this life is from him. Now, when we consider ourselves to be who we really are as sinners, if we have life and breath, if we have food and we have covering, then we have more than we deserve in this present life. But he gives so much more to us. Every good thing is from above. But then there are also trials and James He writes of those trials if we turn back to James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1 in verses 2 through 4, he is seeking to encourage the brethren under the trials and the persecutions that they have to pass through. He says in verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials Knowing, knowing what God is, what his purpose is in these trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect, complete and lacking in nothing. So what James is saying is that our heavenly father, he does not afflict us willingly. 
And his desire is not to bring harm upon us in whatever trial he sends. It is always a testing of our faith with the good aim of producing endurance in the Christian life and maturity. The all-powerful Father in heaven who has such infinite love for all of his children and is the God of all wisdom, he sends providences upon us for this purpose. Trials and troubles, all of them, have this good aim. This is what the apostle speaks of in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject, be submissive to the father of spirits and live in eternal life? They disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the key word, afterward. It is not joyful, but sorrowful as we pass through our trials in this life, but Afterward, God's great purpose is for our holiness and the fruit of righteousness in eternal life. So when we pass through dark providences and when trials endure sometimes for a very long time in this world, what is the easy, the most pleasant, and the best path for us to take? Surely it is not to resist and to argue and to complain against God and to grumble against him. But surely the only good and pleasant path to take is to submit to him in all of his dealings with us. If we believe what he says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose that we might be conformed to the image of his son. If we believe that and we are resting upon it, then we will not complain and grumble at the same time. If he has given to us his beloved son for our salvation, if he has shed the blood of Jesus to cleanse away all of our sins, if he has destined us for eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth to be with him forever, if he has given to us treasures of Christ, then how can we ever doubt that he is not dealing with us in a good and right way in this life. And how can we not submit to him for just a little while longer before we enter into that world to come? Submission to God is what James calls us to back in verse chapter 4 and verse 5. Submit therefore to God. And all of this submission there in verse 7 is under the 
work of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit in verse 5, and the greater grace that he gives in verse 6. In other words, we are to submit to his gospel. We are to submit to his word, to his promises, and to all of his providences, and we cannot do any of it by ourselves. We need the work of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, and we need the grace of God to continually be at work in us that we might do what we should there in verse 7 and submit, therefore, to God in these ways. Let us pray together. Father and heavenly, heavenly Father and great and wonderful God in heaven, Lord, we do ask for your Holy Spirit and for your grace to come upon each of our hearts that we might know more of your grace that will enable us to live and think as we should in all of these ways and to submit ourselves to you in every way, in every circumstance, in every providence and trial, in all of your word and promises. O Lord, help us that we would know more of your grace and that we would submit willingly, cheerfully as we should. Forgive us of all the sin that is still in us that would resist our submission to you and give to us the grace that we need to be pleasing in your sight. Lord, help us now and teach us these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.